Let's take our Bibles this morning, if you would turn with me to Acts chapter number 1. Acts chapter number 1, we'll begin reading in verse 1, and then we'll uh, study the following verses here. Notice Acts chapter number 1, we established three things in our message last week that this book demands of all of us before we consider and approach this book. And we saw in verse number one, first of all, that this book demands the pondering of the saints. Luke writes to Theophilus and he says, Oh, Theophilus! It's an exclamation of basically the wonders of this book. And it ought to do the same for us. It ought to get our attention and we ought to pause for a little while and say, what is it that the Lord did in the first century and what is it that He wants to do today? And I believe I would say the same thing. The second thing we establish that this book demands is the preeminence of, G- of the Savior. The Bible says, O Theophilus in verse 1, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. Jesus began something as we read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And now we come to Acts and we find that what Jesus began is continuing. Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so what we find in the book of Acts is Jesus Christ building His church. And if He is to build His church, then He must have preeminence in the church. And that means that the church, the people who comprise the church, have voluntarily submitted themselves to His rule and His leading. But there's a third thing that this book demands, and that is this book demands the predisposition of servants. He says in verse 2, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. During the 40 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension, during those 40 days, Jesus Christ five times repeated what we refer to as the Great Commission. And he told the disciples on several occasions to wait for the promise of the Comforter that was expounded on in John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. And we find the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter number 2. And we'll study that. But again, the command of the Lord demands the predisposition of God's people. And so we have to pause and ponder this book. Recognizing that Jesus Christ needs to be preeminent in the church. And we must be predisposed as His servants. To be willingly used to accomplish His work in the world. Notice verse 1. The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which He was taken up, after that He, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom He had chosen, to whom also He showed Himself alive after His passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When when they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the season which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. 
And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem a Sabbath day's journey. I want to draw your attention, if you would, to verse number 8. When Jesus Christ gave this command, as he told them, uh, the disciples, waiting for the promise of the Holy Ghost to come, in verse number 8, which would happen in Acts chapter number 2, and he says in verse number 8, And ye shall be witnesses unto me. I want to preach this morning on this thought, witnesses unto me. Witnesses unto me. I would like to preach a message that I've entitled Witnesses Unto Me. The word witnesses here really sums up the work of the local church. Really the work of the church is to be this. It is to be a witness in the world. Uh, Jesus Christ, as a matter of fact, declares us to be witnesses. We are witnesses, notice here, not just witnesses, but witnesses, Jesus says, unto me. We are witnessing of Jesus Christ. Uh, we are witnessing of His person and of the work that He came to do. We are to witness of His special person. And so we ask ourselves this question, what is the local church a witness of? The Word of God reveals, I believe in our passage, three uh, elements upon which the New Testament church is able to witness unto Christ in this world. And it is important that we understand that those same elements found in Acts chapter number 1 uh, will enable this local church in the 21st century to be a witness unto Christ in this world. You see, the world that was turned upside down because of these truths, the world uh, took note that the apostles had been with Jesus and uh, the Bible says that Jerusalem was filled with their doctrine. How was that done? I believe because of three things that we find in the opening chapter of the book of Acts. Three things that the church today can stand on as they are witnesses unto Christ. First of all, the first thing that we stand on this morning is the proofs of the resurrection. I want you to notice here in verse number 3, after the Bible says that Jesus Christ had given, uh, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandment unto the apostles whom He had chosen, notice, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Here what is in mind is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just discussed uh, as something that happened. It says that it is something that has many infallible proofs. There's three words that kind of get our attention here. That is the word many, the word infallible, and the word proof. Many infallible proofs. Today, that is what the church stands on. The church stands on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it stands really as the first element found here in Acts chapter number 1 upon which the first century church stood. The resurrection of Christ is truly what separates Biblical Christianity from all other religions. Why? Because all the other religions and the leaders that arose and began those religions died and are still buried to this day. 
But the one who founded the church, Jesus Christ himself, died and after three days he rose from the dead. You see, the resurrection is the one event that caused the believers uh, that we find in John chapter number 20. If you go with me just a few pages there to your left. In John chapter 20, we see the setting of the disciples in John 20. Notice verse number 19 with me. The Bible says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. And so, when Jesus Christ died, uh, we know that it had been three days, and we find them kind of assembled together in the upper room, and the Bible says the doors were locked. Why? Because of the fear of the Jews. But it's interesting, by the time you reach Mark, chapter number 16, in Mark chapter 16, verse 20, uh, the very last verse of the whole uh, gospel of Mark says this, and they went forth and preached everywhere. <laughs> so uh, what is it that got the disciples to the place uh, where they were hiding for fear of the Jews to the place when they were going everywhere and preaching the gospel everywhere? I'll tell you what happened. The resurrection happened. And not only did the resurrection happen, but the resurrection as Jesus Christ shows us in Luke chapter number 24 was a confirmation of what was prophesied in the Old Testament. And Jesus Christ told His disciples, uh, how, oh fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have written. Must not Christ have suffered, died, and rise again from the dead? We find three aspects of the proof of the resurrection. In other words, three ways in which we, uh, Jesus Christ proved Himself uh, to be raised from the dead. Number one, we see the showing of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us in verse 3, uh, to whom He showed Himself alive after His passion by many infallible proofs. And so the Bible says that Jesus Christ did not kind of communicate uh, in a way that did not see Him. He showed Himself alive after His passion by many infallible proofs. In other words, the, uh, uh, the expression many infallible proofs mean that Christ manifested his, Himself in various ways, in various settings, and He did different things to prove that He was alive. He showed Himself alive. He first, remember, was seen of Mary Magdalene. He showed Himself to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He showed Himself to the ten disciples when Thomas was absent. He showed Himself to the disciples again later when Thomas joined the disciples. He showed Himself to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. He showed Himself to the apostles. He showed Himself uh, to 500 brethren at once in a mountain in Galilee. He appeared to James alone. He finally showed Himself before all that when He ascended up into heaven. And so the Bible tells us that this was many infallible proofs. He showed Himself alive. Not only did He show Himself, we don't see the showing of Jesus Christ, but we also see the seeing of Jesus Christ. Not only did He uh, show Himself, but those He showed Himself to, uh, show, to saw Him. The many infallible proofs can be studied in Scripture. He ate and drank with them to prove to them that He was risen bodily. We reject the idea that Jesus Christ was not raised in a bodily form. He was not a spirit. He was body. He, raised, he was raised in His body. And He proved that to them uh, by, allowing, by showing them how He ate and He drank. He walked and He talked to them. He showed Him His hands. He showed Him His feet. He allowed Thomas to touch His side to show the scars. They could feel the scars. You see, truly, Jesus Christ 
arose in bodily form. This all happened during the course of 40 days. Not that they saw him for 40 days straight, but that they saw him on a different on different occasions during a period of 40 days in various ways, having different conversation and in different places and different people. Many people who have undergone the study and to try to establish the historical fact of the resurrection have deemed it as undeniable. Lee Strobel in his book, The Case for the Resurrection and for Jesus Christ, makes the case very clear. He was an atheist who, whose uh, wife got saved and he went on a journey to uh, try to use his law degree and his journalistic ability uh, to try to go and to find out, to disprove to his wife that Jesus Christ had not risen from the dead. And then he found out that he had. And he says it was not even debatable. And so we find that not only... Uh, we see the showing of Jesus Christ, the seeing of Jesus Christ, but we also see the speaking of Jesus Christ. He showed himself, he was seen, but he also spoke. The Bible tells us right here in Acts chapter number 1. He showed himself alive after his passion uh, by many infallible proofs being seen of them 40 days and notice speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of, of God. Uh, uh, to the kingdom of God. So there was something else that validated the resurrection, and that was what the Lord said to the disciples. Now we find what He said in verse number 4. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith He, Ye have heard of Me, for John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of Him, saying, Lord, what uh, wilt Thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And so we find here when Jesus Christ was speaking to them, He gave them a command. Now again, He addresses here uh, the in verse number uh, chapter and verse number five, uh, what uh, has come to have been called the doctrine of Holy Ghost baptism or the baptism of the Holy Ghost. It is, by the way, very important for us to understand. On the day of Pentecost, you see uh, two distinct things happen, and I, and I want to pause for a moment and address this because of the confusion out there about the baptism of the Holy Ghost, what it means, what is entailed, and what exactly happened on the day of Pentecost. The baptism of the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost, we find two distinct things happen. If you go with me to chapter number 2, verse 3, notice what the Bible says. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. There's two things we find happening in those two verses. There is the Holy Ghost coming upon them, and the Holy Ghost come within them, coming within them. On the one says, it says it, the Holy Ghost came upon them, there was something visible that you could see over them. But then there's also something that happened within them. Now it's important for us to make the distinction between those two events. We know that the Holy Ghost coming upon them that caused them to speak in tongues. But we also know the truth of the Holy Ghost indwelling the believer. In Matthew chapter number 3, when Jesus Christ told His disciples of the coming day when the Holy Ghost would come upon them, He referred back to the teaching of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, notice in verse number 5 of Acts 1. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. The doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Ghost here, uh, Christ is referring back to what John said, John the Baptist said in Matthew 3.11. John the Baptist said this in Matthew 3.11. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. 
But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And also in John chapter 1 verse 33, he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. So John the Baptist had uh, talked about this baptism of the Holy Ghost and he kind of separated his water baptism with the baptism of the Holy Ghost that was to take place at a later time. Now what is important to, to understand is that the baptism of the Holy Ghost was not performed during the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. Did Jesus Christ baptize? Of course he did. As a matter of fact, there was a tumult that had happened and the religious leaders were complaining to John the Baptist and some of John the Baptist's disciples were saying, well, Jesus Christ is baptizing more people than you. Yeah, physical baptism, water baptism. They were going to a river and baptizing people physically, but that's not the baptism of the Holy Ghost that John the Baptist was referring to. Here in Acts chapter 1, that Jesus Christ links what John said to an event that has not had yet happened. So, the doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Ghost is only mentioned seven times in the New Testament. The subject is often misunderstood. Four of the occurrences were when John the Baptist contrasted his water baptism with the one who would come uh, and baptize with the Spirit. Here in Acts chapter 1 verse 5, the Lord spoke to the disciples and he linked again the uh, baptism of John uh, uh, to an event that had not yet taken place even after his resurrection. We know that Christ baptized during his ministry before his crucifixion, therefore we are referring to a different kind of baptism. It is mentioned on a sixth occasion in Acts chapter 11. I would like, like for you to go there with me in Acts chapter number 11. I want you to see that in Acts chapter number 2, uh, it is the Holy Ghost coming upon a group of Jews. But in Acts chapter number 11, it is the Holy Ghost coming upon a group of Gentiles. Now notice Acts 11 and number, verse number 15. The Bible says, And as I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them as on us at the beginning. Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that, he, uh, how that He said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. Uh, for as much then as God gave them the like gift as He did unto us, we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. What was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they, beheld their, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. And so we find here, notice that this verse clearly indicates that the Gentiles in the house of Cornelius had, had the same experience that the Jews had on the day of Pentecost. He says, in other words, it was a one-time event. This idea where there was a Holy Ghost manifestation. But notice our text, the Bible, this event was described as the Holy Ghost coming on them. Now that's important. Later we're going to find, uh, if you go back with me to chapter 10, Acts chapter 10, notice verse 44. While Peter, Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost, and they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God, then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? So notice again, two distinct things happen. There is the Holy Ghost coming on the believers, but there's also the Holy Ghost indwelling the believers. And here I want you to notice very important because that contradicts today the charismatic doctrine that says that you receive the Holy Spirit when you get baptized, physically baptized. Here we find a group of believers who had the gift of speaking in tongues, who had the Holy Ghost within them, who were not baptized already. 
So this idea that the charismatic promotes today that uh, you have to speak in tongues and that's part of the baptism, it is something that is totally separate. Holy Ghost baptism, two things happened on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Ghost came upon the believers and empowered them and then there was tongue speaking. But also we find in Acts chapter 11 the same thing happened to a group of Gentiles in the house of Cornelius and they make reference to one event that happened in Acts chapter number 1. When the Holy Ghost came upon believers. But also the Bible makes a distinction between the Holy Ghost coming upon them and the Holy Ghost indwelling them. Now, with those things in mind, the final reference when you see the Spirit and baptism together is found in 1 Corinthians chapter number 12 and I would like for you to go there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter number 12 and verse number 13. Notice here what the Apostle Paul, as he writes to the church at Corinth, what he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse number, let's begin in verse number 11. But all things worketh at one and the selfsame Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been made, made to drink into one Spirit. So notice here, the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth, and he says that we have been, uh, notice, made... Verse 13, for by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. He's not talking here about physical baptism. He's talking about the baptism of the Spirit of God, but not upon the believer, but within the believer. And that's where the distinction has to be made. Because a man is saved, notice, by uh, the, Holy, the regenerating work of the Spirit of God, and the Holy Spirit of God indwells the believer at the moment of salvation. And so this verse teaches us that all believers are baptized in the Spirit at the moment of salvation into the body of Christ. Every child of God has already received the baptism of the Spirit at the moment of salvation. And we also found out in Acts chapter number 10 that that happened before baptism, the physical baptism. We find this doctrine explained in, again in Romans chapter number 6. If you turn there with me, we dealt with that in our study of uh, the epistle to the Romans. And in Romans chapter number 6, Paul again explains to the believers what happens at salvation. And he says this in Romans 6 verse 3. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? So here he talks about how we are baptized into Jesus Christ. He's not talking about physical baptism. He's talking about our regeneration. Therefore, we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead uh, by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. Uh, with the physical baptism is a testimony of what happens at salvation. Baptism doesn't save a man. It is a testimony of what Romans 6 to, uh, 3 tells us of what happened at salvation. Romans 8 9, the Bible says, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. A child of God is someone who has the Spirit of God. Someone who does not have the Spirit of God is not a child of God. And that happens at the moment of salvation. So I want to make the distinction because when we come to the day of Pentecost, two things happen with the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost comes upon the believers and then the Holy Ghost indwells the believers. And those are two distinct things that we must uh, uh, make sure that we distinguish. It is important 
that we make that distinction uh, uh, of the Holy Ghost coming upon the believer and the Holy Ghost dwelling within the believer. The Holy Ghost coming upon the believers at Pentecost and speaking in tongues is actually a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy declared by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 28 verse 11 and 12 and Joel chapter 2 verse 28 through 32. You see, the speaking in tongues was prophesied as a matter of fact, we see when Paul explains it to the believers at Corinth, he says that uh, these things were for a sign to the Jews. You see, the speaking in tongues was simply that. Just as the miracles of Jesus Christ confirmed that He was the Son of God, so the coming of the Holy Ghost upon the believers and the people who saw the Holy Ghost's power demonstrated was simply there to confirm that these were the people of God. That's why later, uh, one of the religious leaders says, look, if this be of God, uh, ye cannot overthrow it. If it be of men, it's going to die out. But if it be of God, of, of God, ye cannot overthrow it. And so we find that Jesus Christ showed Himself, He was seen, and He spoke. And in those things, we have the proofs of the resurrection. And that is what this church stands on today. We stand on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But there's a second thing we find that we must stand on, and that is the power of the Holy Ghost. You see, if we go back to Acts chapter number 1, Acts chapter number 1, I want you to notice in, with me in verse number 6. After he explains the words of Jesus Christ, well, I want you to notice at the end of verse 6, one of uh, the, 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 the disciples, those that were gathered together, they asked Him, Lord, uh, wilt Thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? So after the resurrection, they had this idea that the Old Testament prophecies that had not been fulfilled uh, would now be fulfilled, and uh, Jesus basically replies, it is not for you to know the time or the season. In other words, the agenda for Israel uh, is not for these believers to know they have another agenda at this time. And that is to preach the gospel. I want you to notice here, he says in verse 7, it is said, He said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the season in which the Father hath put in His own power. But here it is. Here is the declaration of what the church is supposed to stand on. Here is the command of Jesus Christ. He says, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Ye shall receive power. The question arises during our Lord's 40 days before His ascension about the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. We already dealt with that to which Jesus replied that it was not for them to know the times or the season. In other words, it was not something that they should be concerned about. But there's two things that Christ says. This is what you need to be concerned about. Two things that the church today must stand on. First of all, we see the provenance of the power. Where does the power come from? Is it a group of believers who kind of get together and have a pep rally and stir themselves up? Is that the power he's talking about? No, no, no. He says, but ye shall receive power. Notice, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And so we see the source of the power. Where does the power come from? The power comes from the Holy Ghost. 
He is the one that is at work. You remember when Jesus Christ told his disciples in John 13, 14, 15, and 16, and 17, as he talks about the Comforter who is to come, and he says, it is expedient for you that I go away, because if I don't go away, then the Comforter cannot come unto you. And he talks about the Comforter. The Comforter is the Holy Ghost. And then Jesus Christ declares to them that the Holy Ghost, this is what he's going to do. He's going to reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. That's the work of the Holy Ghost. And so when we come here to Acts chapter 1 and we ask ourselves here, when we think about the power, what is it that empowers the church? I'll tell you what, what empowers the church. It's the Holy Ghost. It is the one who is at work in our lives. It is the one who wants to work through our lives. It is the one who is out there convicting men of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He is the one that is at work. He is the one that is continuing the ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus says to His disciples in John chapter 14, He will speak of Me. You see, the whole purpose of the Holy Ghost is to speak of Christ. To glorify Jesus Christ. To lift the name of Jesus Christ up. Which brings us back to the point of we must have a certainty that Jesus Christ is preeminent in the church. You see, the Holy Ghost is the providence of our power, but also we not only see the providence of power, but we see, very important, the purpose of power. What's the power for? Well, he tells them. Notice verse 8. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Uh, what was the power need? Why was the power needed? So that the disciples could be witnesses. So understand when we think about the work of the church, we know that what empowers the church is the Holy Ghost, but we must keep in focus that God empowers the church through the Holy Ghost so that the church could be a witness in the world. And when the church has ceased to be a witness, the church has ceased to be empowered by the Holy Ghost. Because that's what the Holy Ghost empowers us to do. It is the work of the Holy Ghost. Countless times we'll see throughout the book of Acts, we find the disciples and the apostles referring to the power of the Holy Ghost, to the power of God. Even a few chapters uh, later, we're going to find the apostle Peter says, why do you think that we did this by our own power? No. You see, the power would be granted to the first century church. In other words, that would be the confirmation when Jesus Christ says, I will build my church. And we ask, how can He do that if He's not there? He's there in the person of the Holy Ghost. Actively building His church in His power. That's why Jesus said, I will build my church. He didn't say, you will build my church. He didn't say, I will build your church. He said, I will build my church. This is His church. This is His power. And it is time for the church to get busy and involved in what He has commanded us to do. And so we find not only in our text the proofs of the resurrection is what the church stands on, the power of the Holy Ghost is what the church stands on, but thirdly, well, let me make one more point about the power. Uh, notice here He says that you're going to be witness unto Me. Notice both in Jerusalem... And in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. What a task. Overwhelming task, is it not? For a church to do the work of the Lord. That seems above us, doesn't it? That's why His power is necessary. 
That's why He is at work. You see, the people of God, as we dealt with last week, the church needs to have the predisposition of servants. All that God needs is people He can use to accomplish His work and His power. God does not need powerful people. He needs people dependent on His power. But there's one more thing we find the church to stand on, which brings us to the third point, and that is the church stands on the promise of the second coming. In verse number 9, notice he says, And when he had spoken these things while they beheld, he was taken up, and the cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. You see, the church stands on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The power of the Holy Ghost. But also on the second coming of Jesus Christ. He's coming again. As a matter of fact, that's the promise of these verses. Uh, uh, there's uh, this moment, if you can see kind of, kind of the pause, it's been 40 days and now Jesus Christ had this last conversation. He basically says you're going to wait uh, for the Holy Ghost and He's going to give you power. Now uh, you're supposed to wait for the Holy Spirit. Don't think you can do this alone. You are completely dependent upon the Spirit of God. You cannot do this task alone. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth, this is too big for you, but I give you the Holy Ghost. And so you must make sure that you wait for the promise of His coming. And so they're standing there, amazed at this teaching, wondering what's going on. They just asked Him the question, uh, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Uh, when are you going to establish your throne here in Jerusalem as you promised and as the prophets had prophesied? And he basically said, that's not what you ought to be concerned about. What you ought to be concerned about is witnesses in the world right now. That is what our concern ought to be. And towards our Lord's coming. You see, the Lord's coming speaks of reckoning. We know that when He comes again, uh, there's going to be a twofold thing. Uh, there's going to be the rejoicing of the saints, but there's also going to be the destruction of the world. You see, when He comes again, it will be rejoicing for us, but also we know that we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There's going to be a reckoning. And so when we hear about the promise of His coming, that means that we are going to give an account for our obedience to His command. We are going to give an account for how we lived our lives because He's coming again. Notice the question these men asked, uh, which also said, verse 11, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? He basically says, what are you doing here? How long can you stare up in the sky? How long can you wait? He's coming again. Stop staring and go start obeying what the Lord said. As a matter of fact, immediately after this in verse 12, then return they unto Jerusalem where they were supposed to be and wait for the promise of the Holy Ghost. And so we find here that the promise ought to stir the saints to action. The fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming again ought to stir our hearts that our Savior who gave His life for us and who's given us a command that we ought to fulfill and follow is coming back. That ought to stir our hearts and our minds. There's a moment of pause as they're looking up into heaven. They don't see Him anymore. He's gone. There's a pause. No words being uttered. No movement. 
just staring toward heaven. I think perhaps they were expecting for something else to happen, don't you think? Maybe like, well, maybe he's going to come right, he ascended and then he's going to come right back down. And uh, maybe that'll happen that way. Or uh, he's going to ascend up in heaven, then he's going to come down and the promise of his second coming is going to happen right before our eyes. And he says, no, stop gazing into heaven, get busy and do what you're supposed to do. You see, it ought to stir us. The two men interrupted this moment and gives this wonderful promise to them. This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen Him go into heaven. Not only should we be stirred, but also I believe the promise of His second coming should purify us. As a matter of fact, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 tells us, Behold, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone that hath this hope in Him purifieth himself, even as He is pure. Not only does the promise uh, stir the church to action, but also it stirs the church to purification. So that when He comes, we will not be ashamed. If we have this hope in us, this wonderful hope that the Lord is coming back, and that He could come at any moment, doesn't that give us pause and say, how am I living my life now? You see, such a hope purifies the believers. But there's one more thing that this promise does, and that is this promise provides a perspective for the saints. And I mean by this, when these two men come to the disciples and say, the same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen Him go. And I want to pause here ask the question as we uh, endeavor to serve the Lord and as we endeavor to do the work of the Lord and to His power as we stand upon the resurrection and the power of the Holy Spirit of God, the promise that we must be reminded of in this is ask ourselves this question, what are we looking for? Whom are we looking for? What is it that our attention has been captivated by Today, in this 21st century, what is it that we have consumed our time with? These men say, this same, as you look at, this same Jesus shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go. Titus chapter 2, verse 13. The Bible says, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You see, that is what we're looking for. We're looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ our Lord. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, uh, uh, the author says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And I ask the question this morning, what is it that we are looking at? 
You see, if we have our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe it will change our behavior. I, will, I believe it will give us our a pro, a proper perspective as we live our life this, in this world because uh, whosoever uh, have this hope uh, purifies himself. Something happens based upon this hope. I'm troubled. Often believers have discussions and they talk about the end times, the end times, it's a big topic, end times, end times, end times. When is it going to happen? Who's the Antichrist? Is he alive today? What is he going to look like? Is he going to have facial hair? And I'll be honest, I'm tired of it. Because that is not what we're looking for. As a matter of fact, I don't care about the Antichrist. What we ought to be concerned about is our Lord coming again. That's the hope that we have. Uh, that's where our eyes ought to be set. You see, that is what ought to consume the life of the believers. Many things can come and distract us. And we find in Scripture that when our attention is taken away from the Lord, we become cumbered about with business, useless business about our lives. And we just waste our time about things that do not matter in the eyes of eternity. When people are more concerned with how much facial hair the Antichrist is going to have than they are about Jesus Christ coming, there's a problem. And may the Lord turn our attention toward Him. He is coming again. And so the church stands. How, how did the world, uh, how, how did the, the, the first century apostles turn the world upside down? How did they go from hiding to preaching everywhere? I'll tell you how. Because they stood on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They stood in the power of the Holy Ghost. And they stood on the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that is what this church must stand on today. It's right here in Acts chapter number 1. It is the foundational ground laid for the church. And it is the same ground that is still laid today. And may the Lord help us. It seems like a big statement, but do we want to turn the world upside down? I, and I mean in the positive way. Jerusalem was filled with the doctrine. God took ignorant men. And people took counsel. Notice that they had been with Jesus. Is that the people we want to be? And we must stand on those three things. You see our hope is alive because Jesus is alive. Not only is he alive but he's given us his power. And he's promised that he's coming again.